If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. A century ago, in the early years of Germany's Weimar Republic, the psychiatrist Hans Prinzhorn gathered and published a collection of artworks, all by psychiatric patients. These pieces had a profound impact on the art world and influenced many of the leading artists of the time. But within just a few years, both modernist art and people with mental illnesses found themselves in Hitler's firing line, with devastating consequences. In his new book, The Gallery of Miracles and Madness, the journalist and author Charlie English explores this multifaceted story. And for today's episode, he spoke to BBC History magazine editor, Rob Attar. To begin with, could you please introduce us to the figure of Hans Prinzhorn? Who was he and how did he come to be gathering artworks from people who were living in German asylums? Sure. Well, Prinzhorn was a, a, a man of many talents, if you like. He was born in a, in a kind of remote rural part of, of northern Germany, um, into a kind of quite rich bourgeois family, uh, very well educated um, according to the German system of the time. And he was unusual in having both a PhD in art history and having studied as a medical doctor. So by the start of 1919, just the end of the war, when he began collecting psychiatric art, he was. He knew a lot about art. He knew also about medicine, and he was also a veteran of the First World War. So he was extremely, unusually well qualified, if you like, to to explore this subject. And what kind of people were producing this art, and what did Prince Horn hope to achieve by gathering it and then showcasing it? Well, the producers of this art spanned an enormous range of different people across a massively wide range of kind of professional ability, wealth, all all kind of social strata effectively. I mean, what joined them uh, was that they were all the patients or inmates, if you like, to use the language of the time uh, within the German psychiatric institution. I mean, not in not a particular institution, but but asylums all across Germany and indeed the German speaking world. And some of them were even even came from as far away as kind of the US or, or Japan. But they were all uh, incarcerated, if you like, within the asylum system. Um, most of them were diagnosed with what was called schizophrenia. It had only just been described and defined as schizophrenia. Um, but they had a severe mental illness. And, yeah, so they, they, they'd been in for varying numbers of, of years, uh, there were men and women, though there were more men in the collection than there are women, partly because of the way that art was defined, really, at that time. And so Prince Horn's point, I guess, was to produce a very large volume of this work. 
And initially, um, in his conversations with the director of the Heidelberg Psychiatric Clinic, there was a, an intention that it might be used as diagnostic material. So there was a theory in psychiatry at the time that you could look at a particular work of art and draw conclusions about the nature of the illness that that particular person was suffering from. But Prince Horn very quickly moved away from that. He didn't like the fact that people were being diagnosed on the basis of their art. And so he really became fascinated by it as art itself. I mean, he he realised its power. He was um, interested in expressionism, which was very big in Germany at that time. And what you get from looking at this art is a very strong sense of its power to transport you and tell you something about the the life or the existence or the inner life of the person who created it. And I think he recognised that really quite early on. So for him, the art didn't necessarily reflect these people's conditions. It almost transcended it. Yes, it transcended it. It had an amazing power to transport the viewer, I think, is what he felt. It, it, it in a sense, gave you a window onto what these people were experiencing. Um, and we're talking about a, a time when antipsychotic drugs hadn't been invented. So there was a lot of psychosis expressed in this art, or at least what Prince Horn thought was psychosis. I mean, it's, of course, it's hard for us to actually tell because um, we don't really have the, the artist's full accounts of what exactly they were depicting. But certainly in many cases, they seem to be expressing something about the nature of their condition. And, you know, there's no question that it's extremely powerful. I mean, these were very deeply felt sensations, I think, and and, and you get some of that in looking at the art. And it's it's fair to say, isn't it, that some of this art was of a really high quality. I mean, you you see it and you've reproduced a number of the images in the book. This is really powerful, really creative stuff, isn't it? This, This art stands up against artists outside the asylum. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what astonished Prince Horn was that he thought this art was actually better in a way than some of the contemporary professional art that he was seeing at that time. And, you know, of course, there's the question of how do you judge art? What are the criteria for making good or bad art? And I think, you know, you think we have to remember that at this time... Expressionism was, I suppose, at the cutting edge of of avant-garde art. And part of the the kind of way of judging expressionism was how powerfully it moved the viewer. And he was judging these works on that basis often. And he certainly felt that there was more authenticity and more power in in some of his patient artwork than there was in the professional artist's material at that moment. And what then was the response of the wider artistic community to the artworks when they discovered them? Well, I think they were, I mean, there's obviously a kind of range of of different reactions, but among the avant-garde particularly, uh, and the more experimental end of it, they were kind of rapturous. I mean, they they saw them and thought um, they showed great... Depths, great, great ways into the interior of of the human world, the human condition. I mean, you've got to remember that we're talking about the time when art was looking more and more inside the artist, if you like. I mean, we'd come out of a kind of late 19th century tradition in which 
art was very representational. It was about trying to produce a very realistic version of of what people saw. And after that, in the era of Freud and particularly the First World War, art found a very different uh, subject matter. I mean, the, the, the point was not to represent a kind of agreed version of reality. It was to try and show something about what lay inside people, what, what the human condition was, uh, what the Freudian interior looked like. And so for professional artists who were trying to um, discover that interior world, the insane art, as it was called, seemed like a very genuine uh, route into, into the interior. And, and so when Prince Horn produced this kind of enormous wealth of material that seemed to almost exactly mirror what some of the avant-garde were doing at the time. Um, everyone was was pretty bowled over by it, really. And then actually quite a few artists, even leading artists at the time, drew direct inspiration from some of their work. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Prince Horn published a, a book in 1922, which was um, very richly, lavishly illustrated with uh, work from his collection and the book initially was um, um, sort of published in Germany and uh, the the avant-garde in, in Germany lapped it up if you like it was circulated around the Bauhaus where artists like Paul Clay um, looked at it and thought you know it was a drew direct inspiration from it and even uh, art historians have, have gone through works in the collection and compared them with clays after the publication of this book and strong strong parallels. Um, And then in 1922, in the summer of 1922, Max Ernst took the book from Germany to Paris, where he was joining the proto-surrealist movement around André Breton. And the book became such a valuable resource for the surrealists that it became known as the surrealist bible um, and breton and group around him were really obsessed with uh, mental illness and p- partly as a result of the of, of the first world war and their experiences in it which of course were dramatic for a lot of artists or a lot of people in in europe generally and in the middle of the war dada had had grown up which was a kind of deliberately anti-rational attempt to react to the events of the First World War. And Breton and his friends saw madness as a sort of way of morally distancing themselves from the war itself. Um, The idea was that rationality had caused the deaths of millions and millions of people and so much destruction, and that only through being uh, mad could you attain some distance from these events. So they they really uh, almost worshipped mental illness, and so this book of largely schizophrenic art was a was a fantastic source book for them. And again, as with Clay, I mean, many of the surrealist artists directly borrowed from it or and used the techniques of some of Prince Horn's artists in their own work. Do we know whether the artists themselves were aware of the impact their work was having in the wider community? I think very few of them were. I mean, you've got to think that they were uh, largely shut away from society. Many of them weren't even receiving visits from their family, um, never mind 
kind of getting newspaper articles or or news from the from the wider world. Prince on himself, after publishing his book, went on to to, to different areas of um, psychology. He became very interested in psychotherapy, but didn't really pursue this this area for for, for long after the book. So, I mean, clearly some of the doctors were aware of the book and of Prince Horn's work and in kind of elevating this type of material. But Prince Horn also anonymized most of his artists, his schizophrenic masters, as he called some of them, and gave them pseudonyms because the theory at the time was that mental illness was such a kind of taint on a family that you wouldn't want a family name to be used in connection with a mentally ill patient because it might mean that your entire family were kind of um, shunned by the community. So so he he deliberately anonymised them, so there wasn't really any celebrity attached to the actual artists themselves. Was there any backlash towards this book? Were there people within Germany and elsewhere who felt that this wasn't an appropriate thing to be doing? Yes. I mean, it was a worry even when it was published. Even before it was published, there were certain members of the avant-garde even who were concerned that in connecting madness and art in this very kind of overt way that this would this would produce some some difficult uh, political consequences if you like and you know again we should we should think that at, at that time artists were viewed as as in many ways as sort of visionaries or seers for society they were elevated to a very high level and art itself was regarded I think probably more highly than it is today as as a kind of noble philosophical enterprise. So for art and and madness to be connected in that way, some conservative commentators particularly saw saw it as a sort of bringing low of art and almost a kind of philistine attack on art, which of course it wasn't. I mean it was a it was a it was a new it was a new territory, a new way of exploring interesting terrain it wasn't really there was no no one was intending to bring art low as a result but there were certain members of society and of course of the far right who viewed it in exactly that way still to come on the history extra podcast i think you have to recognize that he saw this as a sort of artistic project and even people like thomas mann who despised Hitler, wrote that you had to you had to recognize that was there was something of the artist in Hitler and in his politics. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Now, coming on to the second part of your book, the figure who's introduced there is Adolf Hitler, who himself was an artist, certainly in his early life. How talented an artist was he and how did he compare to other artists at the time? Well, he certainly had a an ability of some sort. I think that would be it would be wrong to say that he didn't. Certainly when he was a, a schoolboy, 
He liked to draw. I think that's undisputed. And he showed some level of skill, um, which has been noted by various contemporaries from his childhood in Linz. I mean, he famously tried to get into the Academy at Vienna. I mean, he, he, he... He thought he was a better artist than he was, and he thought it would be child's play for him to get into the Vienna Academy. So he applied and was absolutely flabbergasted when he failed. And I think even one of his great childhood friends, a a man called August Kubitzek, noted that there was something about his art that was quite, he, he tended to be quite detailed, but it lacked a kind of artistic sensibility. It lacked a kind of sense of atmosphere or a capturing of emotion. What Hitler particularly liked to do was uh, draw and paint buildings and architecture, which he did in a kind of detailed but slightly bland way. And it's clear that the academicians at Vienna uh, didn't really see much potential for him as an artist because he didn't do any kind of portraiture. His, His figures are really quite poor. And they recommended he go into the um, the, the building school um, and study architecture, but he hadn't got the exam results he needed to be an architect. So he was kind of doomed to fail. And after his rejection, he spent some years uh, in Vienna and later in Munich selling uh, uh, watercolours to make a, a, a kind of fairly scratchy living often copying them out from postcards of famous scenes around Vienna. And people would buy them. They weren't worth very much. Even in later life, he kind of said they, they were nothing. I just kind of did them to make a, make a living. So, you know, he had, a, he had a kind of moderate ability as a self-taught artist, but really nothing, nothing substantial. And how much do you think this artistic frustration fed into his political career? Well... I think it did. I mean, he was a very angry, frustrated individual even before this event. After it, he became worse. He was living with Kubizek in Vienna around this time. And bizarrely, he he pretended to his friend that he um, had got into the academy. Um, Kubizek came to Vienna to live with him and quickly got into the conservatoire. He was a musician and it was quite easy for him to get, get in to study music. But Hitler didn't get into the art school. So he uh, would go out every morning and pretend he was going to art school and then come back pretending he'd been there. I mean, it was a very strange situation and one that was almost designed to embarrass himself because it was obvious that someone, uh, indeed Kubizek, was going to find out later on that he he was lying. Um, and Hitler would kind of come in, into their shared room, which was tiny and full of vermin, and rant about every every aspect of the modern world and his life. So, I think you know the, there's a kind of interesting Robert Harris style, you know, alternative history book, no doubt to be written about what would have happened if Hitler had gotten into the Vienna Academy, and maybe things would have been very very different. Uh, but it certainly fueled his resentment towards towards the world, which was really what the source of his politics was. But even when he he rose in his political career, is it fair to say he still saw himself as an artist to some extent? Yes. I mean, I think you could say, as as people have, that, that Nazism, to an extent, was an artistic project. I mean, he always saw himself as an artist in later life. Even in the First World War, before he went into politics, he was known in his regiment as the artist. And in later life, 
his propaganda made him out to be a kind of artist genius, the artist Führer, the artist in chief. And the way that Nazism worked, uh, that the pageants, the stage sets, that even the speeches, um, that there was a sort of artistic quality to them. He, I mean, he designed various Nazi logos and uniforms himself, famously. He oversaw the creation by people like Albert Speer of the light shows um, and propaganda rallies and the marching men, which in cells, they were a sort of pageantry, a sort of artistic event. And then, I mean, you, you can even argue that his his great artistic work as he saw it, though, of course, it was also his most horrific and um, genocidal policy, was, was a sort of re-sculpting of the German people. And he wanted to use eugenics as a way of reshaping the Aryan Germans uh, as he as he saw them into a kind of ubermensch, which meant the eradication of of a whole bunch of other people. So uh, yes, I mean, I think I think you have to recognise that he saw this as a sort of artistic project, and even people like Thomas Mann who despised Hitler, wrote that you had to you had to recognize that was there was something of the artist in Hitler and in his politics. And I suppose following on from that, the Nazis had very strong views themselves on art, and this would have quite negative consequences for many of the artists you talk about early in your book. Absolutely. I mean um Hitler was an anti-modernist in artistic terms of the most extreme kind. Um, when we talk about the conservative right rejecting Prince Horn's ideas about um, insanity and its connections with expressionism and with modern art, I mean, Hitler was a kind of arch conservative in that respect. So he detested um, the idea that artists should be exploring an inner, an inner world or that Dada should exist at all. I mean, he called it, I think he called it the excrescences of insane and degenerate men, you know. Um, so he he personally disliked modern art enormously. And then I think he must have seen it as a way to bring the man or woman in the street um, over to Nazism. I mean, it's said that he used it as a sort of bridge to his politics because... I think you could say, like today, a lot of the general population wasn't particularly keen on avant-garde art. Then, as now, people uh, would would kind of judge it as, as kind of ridiculous and say, well, any idiot could do that kind of thing. And so by attacking modernism, by attacking the avant-garde, Hitler was finding common cause, if you like, um, with, with, the, with some of the German, a section of the German electorate. And these um, degenerate art shows, which is what the Nazis ended up staging to shame modern art, were extremely popular. I mean, millions of people went to see these um, events. And of course, the Nazis promoted them very heavily and they bust and laid on trains to to get people to them. But, but there was a certain chord that the, the politics was striking with the, the population at the time. Actually, interestingly, in your book, you show that Prince Horn himself was not always as anti-Nazi as you would presume him to be. 
That's right. I mean, he, in the early 1930s, wrote a series of articles uh, where he appears to sympathise with Nazism or even say that Hitler Hitler is a good thing. And there was a section of the kind of German intellectual elite at that point who were extremely worried about the uh, future of Germany. You're coming out of the Great Depression after the Wall Street crash. Germany has gone through a period of starvation after the First World War. I think something like six million people are unemployed in the early 1930s. And there is a real uh, angst among many German intellectuals that uh, Germany needs a kind of rebirth. And the strongman comes along like Hitler and appears to rally people, bring them together and promise a kind of glorious future. And Prince Horn, who was politically quite a naive man, seems to have got sucked into that to an extent. I mean, I think it's hard to say what he would have thought about what happened later in the 1930s or even the 1940s, but because he died in 1933. But um, I think he would probably have been horrified by what happened later on because it, it went, ran completely counter to all his cultural leanings in the 1920s. But um, he did have this unfortunate uh, period of, of, in a sense, um, supporting Hitler. And of course, the the Third Reich was particularly dangerous for people with psychiatric illnesses. Um, could you just explain what the Nazis' attitude was to the kind of people who were producing the art Prince Horn showcased? Well, even in the mid-1920s uh, and early 1920s, Hitler showed a tendency to want to um, get rid of the, the mentally ill. And, and that this was something that, again, had come out of the First World War um, when Germany had been in such terrible straits and hundreds of thousands of people had, had literally starved to death. Many people in psychiatric institutions had starved to death because there wasn't enough food to go around and the food was prioritised and people believed it should go to the people who were fighting at the front and so on. So... A lot of psychiatric patients starved in that period. And this almost legitimised, in a way, the idea that the mentally ill were somehow unworthy of life or that when it, it came, when push came to shove and there wasn't enough food to go around, um, these were the people who would have to suffer. So in, the, in Mein Kampf, um, in the mid-1920s, Hitler states fairly clearly that uh, really... Tough decisions need to be made regarding um, people who, uh, who who aren't of, of entire f- full value to the German Reich. And as as time goes on, it becomes more and more clear what this really means, which is initially a, a program of sterilization, which is introduced very soon after Hitler comes to power in 1933. And hundreds of thousands of of psychiatric patients are forcibly sterilised in Germany. And then after that, you get to the period of involuntary euthanasia, which is essentially the first Nazi mass murder action. And as far as I'm aware, the first industrialised killing 
by a state of its own population that's happened anywhere in history. And do we know roughly how many people were, were killed by the Nazis in this way? Something in the region of, I'm going to say, about 300,000. The first action, uh, which was called Action T4, which was a gassing action, killed about 70,000 people. And this was a uh, a system that the Nazis built that uh, Hitler's private office designed, which used carbon monoxide gas to pump into gas chambers, prototype gas chambers, and the mentally ill were shipped to these uh, specific killing stations, which were stationed all around the Reich. And they were they were bussed there and told that they were going to a, a new institution, that they were going to a, a hospital of some sort or a psychiatric hospital of some sort. And then they were taken into these places and then that very same day, in almost all cases, stripped and uh, forcibly pushed into these, um, I mean, the first one was like a converted coach house, pushed in to a chamber that had been designed to look like a shower room. The doors were locked and then the gas was turned on and they were killed in their dozens. Uh, and then their bodies were dragged out and then they were put into burning ovens and incinerated. And this began in 1940, and something like 70,000 psychiatric patients were killed in that, in that process, which was obviously the prototype of the actual Holocaust, which was to come later. And in fact, many of the same SS employees who uh, were employed in action T4 were, were taken on to the camps in Poland to, to kill Jews later on. So, but Action T4 probably killed about 70,000 people. And then after that, there was a period of what they called wild euthanasia or decentralized euthanasia, when institutions were encouraged to kill patients in a less formalized way because the Nazis realized that um, the population were getting wind of, 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 of what had gone on and, and uh, they didn't want it to be so structured. So was there then much opposition to this programme among the wider German population? There doesn't seem to have been. I mean, not, not at the time. One of the, one of the main characters in my book is a, an artist called Franz Karl Bühler, who was killed in an institution called Grafenek, which was really the first killing station at about 30 miles outside Stuttgart in a, a castle there. Um, and I I went to Grafenek and kind of um, looked around the site, and it's, it's quite a rural area, and it's, it's a kind of leafy green valley, and the castle stands at the top of this valley on a, on a kind of artificial promontory. And there are a few small towns and villages around. But, you know... I guess people say after these events, after the downfall of Hitler, that they didn't know anything about it. But the, the chimneys went night and day, pouring out this atrocious smelling smoke, which stuck to people's houses and uh, covered them with soot. And, um, of course, the SS killers drank in the bars down the road and they, they bought at the shops and their vehicles were fixed by the mechanics and the garages and so on. So a lot of the local people did reasonably well out of the killing station being there. 
And there were very few protests from from people in the local area. There were even quite few protests from the psychiatry profession, who many of whom actually agreed with the action, and not too many heads of psychiatric institutions at that point protested very strongly against what was happening. Those who did, of course, were often um, punished either by being sacked and replaced by a kind of party member, or in a very few cases um, sent to concentration camps themselves, but that was really very infrequent. And I think probably the greatest resistance came from certain members of the church. But even then, it wasn't it wasn't really very strong. And certainly the programme achieved its target of killing 70,000 people before protesters stopped it. I mean, it, it, it ended because it had reached 70,000, which was a pre- preset number, um, not because of the, the resistance to it. I was interested in something you said just earlier about how some members of the profession actually welcomed the mass murder of psychiatric patients. Well, what was the rationale behind that? Well, it was, um, I mean, in the aftermath of the First World War, the there were two um, intellectuals, if you like, who, who, who came up with this idea of life unworthy of life, which was people who were, who were so mentally ill or their condition was so bad that they were not able to enjoy life they uh, were a burden on the state and they weren't they weren't worthy of living the two people who wrote this little uh, pamphlet one one of them was a lawyer and the other one was a psychiatrist um, so there was a a drive from within the psychiatric profession itself that some of the patients uh, would be better off if they were euthanized and this debate within the profession rolled on through the 20s and into the early 30s. And it, it, it wasn't um, adopted in the mainstream at, at that point. But of course, when the Nazis came to power, the, the debate was still being had. And there were still psychiatrists in the profession who had supported that idea. And of course, the right-leaning, the more extremist, far-right aspects, members of the profession were more likely to be the ones who were arguing for mass murder or involuntary euthanasia. So, yeah, there was certainly a large section of the psychiatric profession at that time who didn't really object or who even approved of it. And presumably the artists that appeared in Prince Horn and your book, I presume they they all died during the war? Not all of them. I mean, some of them had died beforehand. Of course, Prince, Prince Horn was collecting in 1919 to, to 1921, mostly. So by, by 1940, some of them were very old. Um, some of them were already dead. Some of them did survive uh, Hitler and the war, but something like 30 or so were killed by the Nazi euthanasia actions, including the guy who Prince Horn thought was his best discovery, uh, Bula, who's also the kind of hero of the book. So... Certainly, it wasn't the majority of them that were killed by the Nazis, but a very a substantial minority were. And clearly, your your book ends on quite a bleak note um, with with the the mass killings under the Third Reich. But are there any positive legacies of the story you tell beyond the artworks themselves? Absolutely, yeah. I, I try not to end on a bleak note. I mean, there is a very bleak note near the end, but the the aftermath of Prince Horn's collection is, I think, a very positive story. And 
partly it's that Prince Horn's collection itself survived the war, despite being used in the degenerate art shows as comparative material to show that modern art and Prince Horn's material were very similar uh, and to defame modern art. The Prince Horn collection survives and is rediscovered really in the 50s and 60s. And one of the people who comes to see it in, I think, in the late 1950s is Jean de Buffet, who is a, a French artist who saw Prince Horn's book when he was a young man in the 1920s and became absolutely fascinated with it. And after the war, launched his own collection of psychiatric art because he wanted to escape the idea that um, there was a a kind of educated elite who were able to produce art. He thought art should be democratised. And his idea was that to produce a kind of raw art, as he called it, or art brou. And so he looked into psychiatric art and collected it widely, and it informed his own artwork. And he took his collection around Europe and to New York even for some time, where it was seen by the abstract expressionists and many of the great American post-war artists. And in the kind of 1970s, this kind of art, this art that wasn't produced by professionals, was given a name um, by a a British art critic who described it as outsider art. And this notion of outsider art or art that is produced by people who aren't trained has really gathered um, a, a lot of momentum since then. And there is a an annual outsider art fair um, and the kind of wide acceptance that outsider art is just as valid as as professional art, if you like. Um, and that that you know the range of art makers uh, is much broader than people initially thought. That was Charlie English. The Gallery of Miracles and Madness. Insanity, Art and Hitler's First Mass Murder Programme is out now, published by William Collins. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brushney Collie. Join us tomorrow when Clive Aslett will be speaking about the history of the country house. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.